Well, good morning. My name is Dion, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Good morning to those of you who are joining us online as well. We are in week five of our series, Guideposts, where we are, we are uh, learning more about embracing the things that God has left for us to help guide us on our journey towards life that is truly life. And uh, we're going to be talking about an important one today. First, pray with me, though. Father... We're so grateful that you do not leave us as orphans. You don't leave us wandering, alone, abandoned. But, Father, uh, you, you speak to us by your voice to lead us, Father. And you give us so much more to help us find our way in life towards a life that is whole and good and full. Father, do the same today. We pray in Jesus. Amen. How many of you like mysteries? Oh, I know there are more of you than that. How else do you explain the fact that there have been 12 seasons of Criminal Minds 14 seasons of NCIS and a whopping 18 seasons of Law and Order SVU. That's just a handful, right? It's not just because you love the blood and gore. At least I hope it's not. I hope it's because you, you love mystery. I, I remember for me, I was like in fourth or fifth grade and my big sister Hyacinth, she introduced me to a book called uh, Two Minute Mysteries. It looks something like this. And uh, do, you, do you guys know this? Or have you seen any of these books? Such fun. Uh, you just read short little stories and they give you all of the, all of the data that you need Uh, create a mystery scenario, and then you put on your detective hat and you try to solve the mystery. And I remember the first time I read this book just being um, captivated by it. It sparked a whole Sherlock Holmes obsession after that for a little while. Anyone like Sherlock Holmes? The the TV show's okay, too, if you like that, too. Okay, you can raise your hand for that one. Um, And and I actually think that was probably, you know, my, my love for mystery was probably, even before that, it was sown in by my love for the great mystery-solving detective Scooby-Doo. Anyone heard of him? Uh, yeah, so I mean, from that on, I just knew I'd love mysteries. And still to this day, I love to figure things out. I love to, I love to solve problems. I love to solve mysteries. I, I love watching a movie. Does anyone else do this? I love watching a movie, and I love trying to run ahead in my mind to try to figure out where it's all going. And if I get surprised by a plot twist, I am so disappointed in myself. Because um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where it's going before we even get there. And, and see, that's the thing for most of us, is that we believe mysteries are things that are meant to be solved. And yet today I'm going to talk about a kind of mystery that is not intended to be solved. In fact, it's, it's unsolvable. We're going to talk today about things that are inexplicable, things that we cannot define, things that are transcendent, things that are, I'll even use the word magical. Now magic? <laughs> magic. Who's got time for, for Magic. This is, this is an era of science where we can explain things. We've got rational minds. We can experiment. We can figure things out. Magic and mystery, those have become obsolete. That's what people used to talk about, right, way back in the day. I mean, I mean think about love for a minute. Love used to be a very mysterious thing. Uh, the way ancients described love, at least some of them, was that if you fell in love with someone, it was because a mythical creature shot you in the rear end with a heart-shaped bow and arrow. Right? And, and that was their explanation. It was the only thing that could, could make them understand the power of falling in love. Now, now, of course, we know better. We know that this is all about biochemistry. It's about hormones and endorphins and oxytocin in the brain and bonding you know, hormones and, and, uh, and neurons. And, right? We, we know that. So we know what love is. We, we've demyth, demythologized, demystified love. And yet, isn't it true that there's still something inexplicable about love? I mean, think about, think about a first kiss. There's something so powerful about a first kiss with someone that you love. If you think about kissing in a scientific way, it's actually pretty gross, isn't it? You're like, why would, why would that be powerful? And yet, man, there's, there's something about it, isn't there? 
See, in spite of all of our explanations, there's still something about love that is, uh, that is not easily defined. Or a thing about life and death. Again, for the ancients, they thought about life and death in very different ways. What created life, they weren't really sure, but, but there, was, there was magic or, or angels or other things involved in that. What uh, ended life was also the same, the, the results of spiritual forces or other things. They, they had all these definitions uh, and explanations of how that must have happened, but, but it, was, it was mysterious. And now, now we know better. Right? We understand that it's, it's disease that ends life, and we understand what that looks like, and we understand that the creation of life is a matter of fertility and timing and conception and all those factors. Like, we get that, and yet, and yet, any hospice nurse can tell you that not everyone's death looks the same. And two people can be dying from the same disease in the same, uh, the same kind of time frame, the same uh, progression of the disease, and yet they, they die differently. They may die in entirely different timelines. It's not as easy as, as science and biology and understanding disease and how, how a body eventually fails, is it? And on the other side, life. <laughs> Again, you know, we think it's like timing and, and, uh, and conception and, you know, it's like all this stuff, fertility. And, and yet there's some of you in this room and, and you've, you've gone to doctors and you've spent tons of money and you've experienced the ups and downs, roller coasters, the heartache that comes from trying to get all of those things lined up and still it hasn't happened for you. See, even in life and death, we, we got this stuff figured out, right? Wrong. There's something elusive. There's something that we can't fully grasp, even about these things. Or what about the discovery of our created world? You know, I'm grateful that, that there are people who travel to space, and we send instruments into space, and we got telescopes, and we can try to figure out what's going on in our universe. The only thing that bothers me is that we act, we act so certain about things that we can't possibly know. I mean, I was raised to believe that Pluto was a planet. Anyone else? That was certain. Um, and, uh, and, and now we're, we're not sure. And, and, and that's all fine and good because these things are far beyond our grasp. And I just wish we'd be a little more honest about that, that, that trying to figure out what's going on at the far reaches of our universe, that makes sense. That's good to do. And yet, there's always going to be mystery out there, isn't there? Things that we, we can't understand, things that we can't fully get our minds around, things that we'll never be able to really grasp. And of course, that's true of faith. I, I think in our modern times, we have we run the risk of taking all the mystery out of faith. We just boil it down to doctrines and formulas and creeds and, and we speak with certainty about things that are transcendent, things that are, dare I say, magical, things that are, are mystical. And that's especially true of what we're going to talk about today. See, I get why we do this. I get why we, we push the mystery out of life. Because for us, it sounds nice to live a, a life in existence where everything is, an, where everything is explicable, where, where there's an explanation or a reason behind everything. That sounds nice, doesn't it? The idea that I can make everything like cause and effect and, and, and describe it in detail, that sounds like an attractive way to live because that means life is predictable, I can manage it, I can control it. That sounds good to me. And yet, the truth is, living that way is also incredibly boring. I remember the first time I cracked open a Harry Potter book. It was about 15 years ago. I was, you know, 25. And I was mesmerized from the first few pages. Why? Because it reminded me of, 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 of a time when I used to see the world that way. A world is a, the world is a magical place. Where, where 
things happen that you can't explain and you don't expect. And, and there's something in me that longs for that. And maybe if, if you felt that the same kind of thing, and it doesn't have to be about Harry Potter, maybe it's about something else. If you felt that same kind of thing, maybe that's a sign, that's a marker that we weren't meant, we weren't created to explain all mysteries. But instead, we were created to live in the midst of mystery, that there still is mystery in our very rational scientific age. There, there are mysteries, there are transcendent things, there are inexplicable things that we are meant to be caught up in. And, and, and it's our job to just live in the midst of them, not to explain them, but to live in the midst of them. In early Christian theology, they had a word, and the word was mysterion. Uh, this is what it looks like in Greek, and you don't have to be able to read Greek letters to kind of hear what that word sounds like, mysterion. That is the root of our modern word, mystery. Uh, and the word mysterion was the word that ancients chose to describe the guidepost that we're going to talk about today, the guidepost of communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, or whatever you call it. Um, they called it mysterion. It was their way of saying that there's more here than, than we can understand or explain or imagine. Now, later on, that word was replaced by the word sacramentum, which was actually a word that re referred to an oath that someone would take in military service. But I like mysterion better. I, I think that suits this better. And, and today, this is my hope, that as we explore this guidepost of communion that is so divisive and confusing and people think all different kinds of things about it, I hope I can, I can enlighten you and open up your mind to understand what Jesus was actually saying when he instituted this, uh, this, this, gu this guidepost for us, communion. But more than that, what I really hope I can do is help us live in to the divine mystery that is all around us and is certainly present in this meal that we'll celebrate later on. If I do this right, we will get both understanding and also a greater sense of mystery. And so to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. You can look on page 995 in your uh, Bible in, in the pew if you're here in the room. Other words will also be up on the screen. These are, these are events that happen the night that Jesus is betrayed right before his death. Let's look. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, a festival that precedes Passover, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. Now, Jesus is giving a, a clue to his disciples and to this guy that something is about to happen. For, for about three years, they've been waiting for Jesus to, to, to just kind of move this thing forward. He'd been doing great things and teaching and miracles. They've been waiting for him to take it to the next level, and he's signaling that something is about to happen. He's about to take things to the next level. So my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Thanks for inviting yourself over, Jesus, right? So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. How many of you have heard of the Passover before? You know that word? Yeah, most of us know it as a celebration that, that Jewish people celebrate, a holiday that they celebrate. It's right around Christian Easter but the roots of Passover actually go way, way, way back to the year 1400, around the year 1400 BC. And they trace their roots to the land of Egypt, part of Egypt. See, at that time, 
God's chosen people. And that's what the Israelites were called. They were called God's chosen people. Not because he loved them best, but because he had a purpose for them. His, his desire was that he was going to choose them and favor them and bless them so greatly that eventually all nations, all nations, hear that? All nations would be blessed through them. And so God's in the middle of unfolding all of this, but Israel finds themselves around 1400 BC in a very difficult place. They find themselves living in Egypt and they went there to escape a famine and to find rescue. And that was good for a little while. And then they become slaves there. And God, he is not a fan of his people living in slavery. And so he, uh, he sends Moses, this, this man Moses, you probably heard of him, and uh, he sends Moses to go in to try to, to try to bring the people out of Egypt. You know some of this, right? Some of this history. Now Moses is a guy who is interesting. He has a very checkered past. He was raised among the, the best of the best in the palace of the Pharaoh. He was given a royal education, all kinds of promise. And then at 40, he, he, he had a huge stumble. He ran away from all of that, went and lived out in the wilderness. God brought him back and said, Moses, I want you to be the one to lead my people out of slavery. And uh, so Moses comes and, and, and he appears to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he tries diplomacy first. He says, hey, these are God's people. Why don't you let them go? Let them go out of the wilderness and sacrifice to their God at very least. And Pharaoh says, no way, I'm not having it. So uh, God gets a little tougher. And, and through Moses, again, you might know part of this story, uh, God says, I'm going to bring now plagues on Egypt, 10 plagues, and each one is worse than the first, and, uh, or worse than the one before. And uh, after each plague is brought, Pharaoh has an opportunity to let God's people go, and every time he refuses. And finally, it comes to the last plague, the plague of the firstborn. God decreed that because Pharaoh was holding hostage God's firstborn son, Israel, right? This chosen nation that would be blessed and then would bless all nations. That because Pharaoh was holding hostage his firstborn, God said that he would, he would create this plague where all the firstborn in the entire land of Egypt, animal, people, they would die on a given night. An angel of death would pass over the land and, 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 and all of them would die. But, I know that sounds harsh, and it is harsh, because uh, so is slavery and all the things that Pharaoh was doing to God's people. I mean, Pharaoh was doing horrific things to them. But because God is merciful and he doesn't want anyone to perish needlessly, and, and you can just trace that all throughout the scriptures, God provided a way for people to live even under this plague. And, and it involved a meal with a lamb. And the blood of the lamb taken and, and, and used to mark their doorposts of their houses so that when the angel of death passed over Israel and, and brought death to every firstborn, it, it would kind of skip over, it would pass over those houses and the people living inside, they would be spared. And so those who respected and trusted the word of God, who, who carried out this meal, as he said, and marked the doorpost of their houses with the blood of the lamb, they were spared. And all of this happens and, and all the rest of Egypt is mourning and crying and Pharaoh finally lets the people go free and from that moment on, God decrees that every year the people are to celebrate the Passover all over again, the sacred meal with all of these rituals and, and specifics. They're to celebrate it every year as a reminder of who God is, that he is a rescuer, that he cannot stand seeing his people in slavery, that he will come to them and set them free, that that's who he is. It was a reminder not only of, of what happened 
but it was a reminder of, of, man, this is who God still is, and we can expect him to rescue us. Passover every year for Hebrew people, even in Jesus' day, became this day where, where they looked forward to, maybe this is a time God will do a new act of rescue for us, because after all, he's the God who set us free from slavery in Egypt. This is who God is. This is what he does. And so we see here in Matthew 26, Jesus and his disciples getting ready to celebrate this Passover meal. But what they don't understand fully is that Jesus is about to do something new. He's about to remake the entire Passover. Take a look. It says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, with his disciples. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. This is a bombshell. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go, just as it is written about him. This is a messianic title, and he's, he's explaining what's about to happen, but they, they don't fully hear it yet. The son of man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. So right in the middle of Jesus getting ready to do this great thing, you get this news of betrayal. Now, I, I want you to think for a second. How do you handle it when someone, when someone maybe you love, when they offend you, when they hurt you, or they betray you? Does anyone here handle that well? Feel like, yeah, yeah, I do betrayal really well. See, I, I don't know about me or about you, but I can speak for me. Um, there's something in me when I'm feeling betrayed. It like is is educated and is you know thoughtful and as Christian as I want to be. When I'm when I'm betrayed, there's something in me that goes like caveman, just like Neanderthal. I, I go to the worst places. I want retaliation, revenge. You know, I, I just dream up crazy stuff. How does Jesus handle it when he when he uh, reveals that one of his close followers is going to betray him. Thankfully, not like me, he handles it very differently than how I handle it. Jesus will give his life for that man. Look what he says next. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, or sometimes uh, another manuscript variation says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the, uh, this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And then when they had sung a hymn, a blessing hymn at the end, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, these words may be familiar to you if you spend a lot of time in church. If you're newer to church, maybe they sound a little crazy. This is my body, this is my blood. I, I want to I connect some dots for you here today. But, but here's what I want to say right off the bat. That Jesus is doing more here than just sit, foreshadowing what's about to happen. He's, he's doing more than using the Passover as an opportunity to explain or foreshadow that he is going to die See, what Jesus is doing is he is reinventing the Passover by placing himself right in the middle of it. Let me show you what I mean. Here I kind of have a, a modern, maybe a more modern Passover table set up here. 
And the first thing we know that Jesus does, it describes eating, and the Passover is, is a very elaborate meal. But then it kind of zooms in on this one moment in the Passover meal. It says, Jesus took bread, uh, and when he had broken it, when he gave given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Uh, the bread that they were talking about was unleavened bread. This is the bread of Passover. This is, this is matzah bread here, but um, unleavened bread, sometimes called the bread of haste. It was unleavened bread that the Israelites made the night before they left Egypt. And the reason it was unleavened bread is, is God told them, hey, it, it's time for you to go. You're going to leave town. You're going to finally escape your slavery. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. But there's no time to sit around and wait for the bread to rise. You're going to need provisions and rations. So this is the bread of haste. Just, just make this bread without yeast because your rescue, your salvation is imminent. It is coming soon. It's not a long way off. So don't even wait for the bread to rise. Make unleavened bread. Forever after, unleavened bread is, is the bread of the Passover meal. Now, it's also true um, that in the Passover meal, there, um, there are usually three pieces of matzah bread stacked together. And what happens in a Passover celebration, Passover celebration, is the host um, will take the middle piece of matzah out of the stack um, and then he will, he will break it in the Passover celebration. He'll break the, the middle piece of bread. Uh, and then he'll take the larger piece of bread and he'll wrap it in a, in a linen or a, there's a special, like a special, I guess, bag for it. Um, and this is called the afikomen. Um, and this will be hidden in the Passover meal. In modern Passover celebrations, in fact, they get the kids involved and, and they hide it somewhere in the house and, and the kids have to go and look for it and find it and they bring it back. And when they bring it back to the Passover meal, they get rewarded. They, they, they get rewarded because they, they are, the host is redeeming the afikomen, bringing it back into the meal. And it's a great moment of celebration when the afikomen is brought back. But I want you to imagine now, a little bit of context there. I want you to imagine Jesus sitting at a Passover table looks very different than this one with his 12 disciples. And he, uh, he takes this stack of matzah bread, right? Three pieces of bread. He takes a stack of matzah bread and, uh, and he takes the middle piece out of it. Now, we just talked about the Trinity last week, that, uh, that God is three in one, one God, three persons. And so I'm not saying this is exactly what Jesus is doing. I don't know, this, this is Mysterian. Um, Jesus takes the middle piece of matzah bread out of the stack and he, and he takes it and he separates it from the other two. And then he holds up the, the middle piece of matzah, the second piece of matzah, and he breaks it. And he says, take and eat, this is my body. And he gives it for them to eat. He takes the afikomen, he wraps it up. It's put away later because it's gonna go away for a little while, but it's gonna come back. And when it comes back, there's gonna be celebration. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Beginning to? I'm not going to spell it all out for you. You've got to wrestle with this. Uh, then it says he took the cup. Now, to be fair, there are actually four cups in the Passover meal. There's the cup of sanctification. There's the cup of plagues or wrath or judgment. There's the cup of redemption. And then there's the cup of praise. So which of these cups was it? Which of these cups was it that Jesus took? Well, we know which cup it was. It was the cup after supper. It was the cup of redemption. Now, redemption, do you know that word redemption? 
Redemption means to buy something back, something that once was yours, to buy it back, to, to claim it again, to get your guitar out of hock, uh, is to buy it back, right? Um, to, 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 to go and to find a family member who has been sold into slavery, and this is how it worked in the ancient world. If you ran yourself into debt, you couldn't declare bankruptcy, you were sold into slavery, you had to work it off, but someone, one of your relatives could come and they could redeem you, they could pay the price for your freedom, they could buy your release from slavery, redemption. It's the cup of redemption that Jesus took in his hands and he raised. And he said, take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, it's my blood that's gonna redeem you. My blood will be poured out And through my blood, I will guarantee your release from whatever it is that that enslaves you. I've come to be your redeemer. I will pay the price to buy your freedom. See what Jesus is doing? He's placing himself right in the middle of the Passover as the new Passover lamb. Now, I haven't even talked to you about the lamb. Right? But, but the lamb was the centerpiece of the, of the meal, the main figure of the meal. The lamb was the, the animal that was sacrificed. The lamb was eaten. The lamb's blood was spilled. The lamb's blood marked the doorposts in Egypt, remember? The lamb, the lambs were sacrificed in the temple in Jerusalem every year to celebrate the Passover. And we already know that from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was called the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what his cousin John referred to him as when he saw him. But do you know this? The place that Jesus was born, and, and you know that place, right? Where was Jesus born? I know you got to go back to Christmas a few months ago. What was it? Uh, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. The place Jesus was born, Bethlehem. Do you know that Bethlehem is the place, the place, just outside of Jerusalem, Bethlehem is the place. And, and remember who, who came to Jesus' uh, you know, manger? Uh, the first people who heard the announcement, do you remember who they were? Shepherds, right? So Bethlehem's a place where they raise sheep. Not just any sheep, but Bethlehem is a place where they raise the lambs that are later brought to Jerusalem to be slaughtered on the Passover. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This lamb who would one day make his way to Jerusalem to be slaughtered on Passover for our redemption. Man, do you see what Jesus is saying as he prepares his disciples for his coming death? Do you see what he's saying about this Passover meal as he institutes a new Passover meal? Do you see it? Now, here's where we are in danger because I've just given you some explanation, and uh, the danger is that we could walk away today and we could say, Okay, I got it, I've unwrapped the metaphor. I've decoded the symbolism. I get it. I I get what you're laying down. I understand what Jesus is saying. The mystery has been revealed. I've got it all figured out. Jesus is the lamb. Okay, I know what that means. His body's broken. Okay, I get that Afikoman thing. Okay, okay. Jesus is just using this as an elaborate, like, children's message, right? An object lesson where he's just, he's using it as a metaphor, as a symbol to explain to us what he's about to do to, to help his disciples understand that he's about to die. See, the danger is that we could settle for this explanation, we could walk away and we say, I get it, it's simple, it's metaphor, and, and man, that's, that's really cool, that's really neat, that's really powerful that Jesus taught in that way. What a great teacher. 
But do you remember what the ancients called this thing, this, this gift of communion? I gave you a word earlier. Do you remember the word? Yeah, mysterion. Mysterion. See, the ancients, people who understood this meal better than I do could explain it better than I just explained it. People who understood all of the symbolism and the metaphor and the nuance, who understood it intimately, who understood exactly how to decode it, they still insisted on calling it mysterion. See, the danger is we could walk out of here with, with a perfectly great explanation of what this all means. And we could miss the mystery. And I tell you, it's, it's in the mystery of this meal. It's in the mystery that we derive true power and sustenance and guidance for our journeys. So, so could it be possible I've explained to you kind of how it all works, but could it be possible that, that when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, could it be possible that Jesus means it as more than just a symbol? Could it be possible that Jesus is saying that forever after, when we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we not only proclaim that he's, he has died, but, but, but it's a way for us to connect with him. That in, with, and under the bread and wine, he is truly present. And this is our chance to commune with him. People who have never laid eyes on Jesus, who didn't get to see him, never got to eat a Passover meal with him, could Jesus be saying that, that when he actually said these words, this is my body and this is my blood, it wasn't just a metaphor. He was declaring something to be true. That, that if we want a connection with him, if, if we want intimacy with him, if we want a touch from him, then we find it here. In with and under the bread and wine. Now I know scientifically, man, that doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. And you're right. Or maybe you're saying, no, 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 it's just, it's just symbol. It's just metaphor. It's, it's just a really clever object lesson. But the ancients called this mysterion. So could it be that there's something more to this? Further, could it be that when we receive this bread and wine, we're not just eating a cracker and thinking about Jesus and what he did for us 2,000 years ago? Could it be that when we, we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, could it be that Jesus' rescue washes over us anew? Could it be that in this moment, we're not just remembering, oh yeah, 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 I get caught up and I'm in my sin, but 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for me. Could, could it be something more profound than that? Could it be that the rescue, the redemption, the love and the forgiveness of God breaking into real time in the here and now, speaking over me, Dion, you are forgiven. Could it be that when we eat and when we drink, Jesus looks down from heaven at us and, and he sees what we're enslaved to, and, and it still bothers him as much today as it bothered him when he looked at his Israelite people trapped in Egypt, groaning under slavery. He sees the things that enslave us. And could it be that in an act of mercy and compassion, he comes down and he redeems us, buys us back. And he says, no, you're not slaves anymore. And he sets us free and he forgives us and he washes us and he rescues us in real time. Now, I know it's easier just to see this as a reminder just eat a wafer and think about Jesus dying. Could it be something more? Could it be that when we come forward and we do this together as a body, we're just not expressing our unity 
eating from the one bread, the one cup, that, that's not just like, oh, that's a cool metaphor of that we're one body. You know, no, could it be that when we eat and when we drink, Jesus begins to do something in us and he actually begins to make us one? People are different, got different stories, different backgrounds. We're at different places in our journey. Could it be that when we come forward and we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, Jesus begins doing something in us, transforming us, softening us, giving us the ability to love and forgive and serve one another, and truly he brings us together, people who are so diverse, and he makes us one. He knits our hearts together. He forms us into one body. Could it be? And could it be possible that when we're brought around this table, it's more than just a, a look back at an event that happened? It's that, but, but could it be more? Could it be, and I don't know about you, but sometimes, some days, some weeks, some months, some years, living is hard. And you're just kind of muddling through you know, trying, to, trying to keep it together, trying to pay your bills, trying to keep your relationships intact, trying to stay healthy, trying to, trying to beat that disease, trying to just make life work. And uh, in some of those seasons of life, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself crying out, Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> and sometimes it seems like he's so slow in coming. But could it be that when we come forward and we eat and we drink, Jesus is, is sealing a promise to us. Not only that, he's, he's giving us a glimpse of our destiny. See, the Bible says that someday Jesus will come back and he will take us as his beloved, as his bride. And he will take us to a great feast, a great banquet in heaven. And he will wed himself to us he will be ours we will be his forever and, and could it be even though that's a long way off or so it seems could it be that in this meal Jesus comes to us and he gives us a glimpse of our destiny that it won't always be hard we won't always be alone that it's not all fight and battle and, and difficulty there's a glorious future waiting for us. Could it be that we get a foretaste of a feast to come? Truly, even though it's a long way off, here and now. See, if we only wrap our minds around the explanation of this guidepost, I think we've missed the most powerful part. It's not until we live into the mystery. That's what the ancients called it, and they understood this better than I do. It's not until we live into the mystery of this moment that we discover its power, its guidance, its help for our journey. And so in just a moment, we're gonna have an opportunity to experience it. And maybe you'll understand more about it than you ever understood before, and that's a good thing. But there's more here than you can possibly understand. The scriptures speak of that. I, I know it to be true. And so I invite you to come forward in just a moment and live into this incredible mystery. But first, let's pray. Father in heaven, right now we acknowledge 
that the present state of our life, no matter what it looks like to others, no matter what picture we like to present to the world, the true reality of our lives today is that we are enslaved. And Father, sometimes we find ourselves in slavery to things that are no fault of our own, and sometimes we have been fully responsible and complicit in our slavery. And yet, Father, in this moment, we just cry out to you in our hearts, acknowledging our slavery, each one of us on our own individually. Hear us as we cry out in our hearts, acknowledging our slavery and asking for your rescue. Father, we also confess that we have made you so small. We've limited your power to the things that we can understand. And we've expected nothing more from you than that which we could explain, that which seems rational and reasonable. Father, but we need more from you than what is rational and reasonable and explicable. Father, we need the miraculous. We need the transcendent. So Father, hear us as we, as we confess and cry out, asking you to help our unbelief. Help us live into your divine mystery. Hear us. Hear us.